everybody. I am here with one of my favorite books and now one of my favorite authors, Roland Lazabi. It is Michael Jordan, The Life. Uh, as I was telling you earlier before we started this call, I've read uh, all the Michael Jordan books. This is by far my favorite. It may be one of the best sports books I've ever read. Uh, and I don't say that. Those people who know me, I don't... Uh, you know, I don't compliment too willy-nilly. Um, so, <laughs> all right. So, lots of places we can go with this book. Uh, and I think the way to start, I'm going to start with the best, my favorite part. Oh, and by the way, I didn't, I've talked so much I didn't even let you say hello. 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 How are you doing? <laughs> Great to talk to you, Ty. I am very thankful. I know you have covered sports and specifically basketball uh as much as almost anybody, so it's an honor you took the time to talk to me. Thank you so much. Got a million and a half people on my book club. They are always looking for amazing books. And by the way, go out to your bookstore immediately, buy this book. Uh, just take my word for it, as most of you do. This one is in my top, uh, as I call it, the uh, Dunbar's number, the most important books every person should have in their library, because Michael Jordan uh, not only is arguably the greatest basketball player of all time, maybe the greatest athlete, and more importantly, the way you wrote this book is so full of lessons that everybody can use. What was your, uh, what was your, you know, it's interesting. Let me, let me start by saying this. Page 165. You say, the ability to listen was among Jordan's most precious gifts. To his coaches, his capacity to be coached was his single most impressive attribute, beyond even the 18-year-old Jordan's spectacular physical gift. Dean Smith asserted, I have never seen a player listen so closely to what the coaches said and then go and do it. I mean, what greater compliment could a human get? And, and do you think that's the defining attribute of Jordan over his ability to jump in this? Was that it? Well, there's so many things uh, that go forward together uh, at, at one time. Um, as Michael Jordan told me, timing is everything. Uh, and, and it's true. Uh, he, he had this perfect timing, and that included all these various elements of his person personality. There's no question that this ability to listen was probably one of the most overlooked facets of his personality. But it, it really is supreme in many ways. It's hard to say that it's greater than his jumping ability, or it's greater than his tremendous competitive spirit. But I think it's fair to say it's certainly the equal of two, uh, equal of the other two. It just doesn't get uh, all of the notice that the other two have gotten. So Dave, I mean, but, you know, played David Thompson, arguably higher vertical leap, but yet nowhere near, of course he had an injury, but still was never probably going to be Jordan as we know Jordan, you know. Would you right, well he came along, David Thompson came along, and this is of course, Michael Jordan studied David Thompson even as a child, but he came along when the dunk was not allowed. Jordan came along after the dunk had, had been re-entered in the college game, but he had a college coach who didn't really want him to dunk. His major conflict with Dean Smith was over a dunk. Uh, in high school, Michael Jordan had been able to run free with all this wild athleticism, and then he suddenly had to go to North Carolina and completely harness it. Anthony Ticci, who played against him in high school and both uh, in college, uh, he played at Wake Forest, which was in the same conference as uh, UNC, Ticci said, you know, Michael has never gotten credit for having the character to right. be able to bend all that athleticism to that very strict system. Yes. Well, that's why I say, Jordan, I, I wrote a, I already wrote a book review on it, uh, but then I had to get you on the phone because it was so interesting about book. I, and I, I wrote in the book that uh, Jordan was the dichotomy. He was outwardly uh, incredibly cocky. You talk about on different pages here I've written where he, he talks about his ability to talk trash or his love of talking trash and telling people how he was the best and fastest and 
tells James Worthy, I'm fast, or when they said James Worthy is the fastest on the team, he said, no, I'm the fastest. But yet, in, so outwardly cocky, inwardly, if you look at actions, he says here again on page 165, my greatest skill is being teachable. I was like a sponge. Even if I thought the coaches were wrong, I tried to listen and learn something. So he had the humility to go, even if I thought the coaches were wrong, I was still turning on a dime. Whereas most people, most of us mere mortals in the world, I know if I look at different times of my life, uh, I have been outwardly humble, but inwardly I've done my own thing. Right. Uh, and, you know, the coaches, um, Phil Jackson and Tex Winter, who coached Michael Jordan with the Chicago Bulls and then coached Kobe Bryant with the Los Angeles Lakers, they often marveled at the similarities between the two. But uh, they they said, obviously, Michael had larger hands and was stronger, but one of the other great things was that he had this experience playing for Dean Smith. He knew how to fit his personality within a team structure, and that made him, uh, ironically, once he got to the NBA, that was the thing that really launched his greatness. So theoretically, Kobe Bryant uh, peaked too early, be by just going straight out of high school to the Lakers, signing. I think he signed a contract before he was 18. Before he could he leave. did. He did. So you know, one of my mentors told me, he said, "Ty, be careful of making a million dollars before you're 30, because it will trap you. It will lock you in. Uh, let the natural progression and seasons of life play out, and be patient enough to be like Jordan went. What three years in college, right? Two or three? Yes, he did. Three years. Yeah. So do you think that's true that people that, that Jordan followed this kind of natural cycle and disciplined himself to not just jump out? I mean, he certainly could have gone to another school in college that would have highlighted his personal uh, skills more. Than and, he and he did uh, seek to go to the University of Virginia, and he wanted to go to UCLA, uh, but neither of those schools is really set up to recruit him. And ultimately, he, he wound up, of course, at North Carolina. He did not initially believe he could uh, start and play and be a primary player at North Carolina because, well, Michael was such a late bloomer. It wasn't clear to him just how good he was. That was something that happened. Finding out how good he really was is something, as he explained it to me, that happened over the course of his career, the things he did surprised even him. And so in that sense, he wasn't reaping all of the riches early in his life. In fact, when he got to the NBA, he went to a, a team, the Chicago Bulls, that was very poor. And uh, he had much frustration and, and actually became cynical due to all that frustration before at age 27, finding his way and beginning to realize his potential. Yeah. You said on page 104, you said uh, you spoke of his focus. You said in 1980, he was just gaining the first sense of his tremendous ability to focus and how certain setbacks, talking about Utah Jazz game where he played sick, such as illness or some particular slight, could send that focus even to higher intensity. So for the average human not necessarily uh, competing for NBA Finals. Do you think this same this is a this is a takeaway from Jordan, this ability to focus down? And can you talk about the focus? I know you know him in person and covered him. What do you see there in the in the realm of focus? Well, Jordan had uh, extraordinary abilities to focus, and he could focus past injury. He always wanted to know if, for example, that he wasn't seriously injured, i.e., my ankle hurts terribly, but I want to know, am I doing any structural damage to it? And if they told him no, he'd just say, okay, I'm past this. Something that Kobe Bryant is uh, well known for doing as well, and other other players. Uh, obviously, uh, women in childbirth for the ages have, have been able to uh, do those kinds of things. But Jordan, as an athlete, as a um, competitor and performer, had a unique ability to concentrate. Now, Phil Jackson, his coach, wanted even more of that. And so he brought in George Mumford, 
the psychologist, the the uh, mindfulness expert, to really teach all of the Chicago Bulls players how to meditate, how to stay, quote, in the moment, these Zen practices. And Jordan later explained to George Mumford that while he had these abilities to focus, that mindfulness training, that uh, building the muscle of the mind, as Phil Jackson called it, those things took his awareness to new heights. So, so this Mumford, what, what do you know any of the, I mean, is there any specific training? Was it just meditating and focusing down? Is like the power of now by Eckhart Tolle and traditional meditation, or were there any takeaways you remember from that? That's interesting. Well, well no, a, a lot of meditation, a lot of practice being in the moment, uh, because basketball is such an end-to-end game. And the pressure, particularly in the playoffs, is so huge. There's so much to be gained and lost by these players. Phil Jackson wanted uh, the meditation itself to uh, allow them to get into a, a level of focus that would prevent them from dwelling on mistakes. Not that it could prevent them from making mistakes, but in basketball, if you make a mistake at one end of the floor and you're thinking about it at the other end, you're not in the moment. You're going to make another mistake, and then you're going to compound them. Yeah, You can see that frequently. And um, even before George Mumford, who came in in 1994 to begin working with the Bulls, even before... Uh, even before he worked with him, George Mumford observed Michael Jordan in practice. And this was a 32-year-old Michael Jordan. And he was so overwhelming for the other players on the floor. He had an energy level that was disturbing. George Mumford, who was no lightweight, he had played basketball with Julius Irving at the University of Massachusetts. He had roomed with Julius Irving. He knew elite talent. But when he saw Jordan at practice, his first thought was, this guy can't sustain this. He must be bipolar or or manic depressive. He's in some elevated state that he can't maintain. And Mumford spent the next month looking for the down cycle that follows such uh, conditions. And he was sure that Jordan would bottom out somewhere. But as time went on, he came to realize that elevated state was Jordan's normal state. He could launch himself into the zone. He had his devices for doing that, as we uh, have pointed out. You know, he he would imagine slights or, or find real slights or find things that just pushed his psyche to that level of focus. And Jordan had many of those devices already down by the time Mumford witnessed him for the first time. Yeah, I thought one thing that I loved, one of the reasons I knew this was going to be a good book is in the first pages, uh, you did something, you know, I'm a big, uh, uh, one of my good buddies is uh, Dr. David Buss. He's the kind of the preeminent evolutionary psychologist, and I'm very interested in, you know, the nature versus nurture arguments. And uh, what you highlighted here at the beginning is that this tremendous physical uh, energy was also seen in his great grandfather. Right. Which right. Is- Who was five foot five and crippled, but um, was fierce and was a logger and, uh, you know, rafted the logs down the river. He was a sharecropper. Uh, all of this during Jim Crow. And he was a lumberman but he was also a moonshiner, and he became this moonshiner of, of great reputation there on the coastal plain in North Carolina. He lived until Michael was 14, and he lorded over the <laughs> Jordan clan. No one challenged his authority on anything. Well, he sounded like he had earned it as a patriarch. So, Jordan, let's talk. So we talked about... Uh, again, I'm here with Jordan, uh, with uh, Roland Lazenby and Michael Jordan, The Life, my favorite book on Jordan and maybe one of the best books I've ever seen on sports. Pick it up, uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, if you can. I know there's been a few issues, but uh, you can find this book. I highly recommend it. So let's move to the next thing that I saw here, even starting before Jordan's born, mentors. I'm big on this. We talk about this uh, all the time in, in my uh you know, I have an academy for business and so on. So Jordan obviously had his great-grandfather uh, who was still alive when he was growing up. 
Uh, who else? Uh, you've got Dean Smith. You've got Phil Jackson. You brought up Mumford. Are there other mentors? And do you do you feel like this ability to, to be teachable and yet and also open to mentors was a key ingredient in Michael Jordan's you know amazing success? Uh, well, you know, he was so fierce. I I think that um, uh, he obviously had some trouble with authority, not a lot. But uh, he was so frustrated as a young professional in the NBA. But Phil Jackson came to the team as an assistant coach. And, you know, Phil's a, a different bird. He had uh, written openly about using LSD and other psychedelic drugs when he was an NBA player himself. And he, he had been raised by two fundamentalist preachers, his parents. And he he grew up, uh, his, his mother as a preacher, uh, worked with the Native American reservations there. And so Phil Jackson was the kind of guy who would beat a tom-tom and chant before games. He had all of these unusual practices. But he, as an assistant coach, he had studied Jordan most carefully. And he knew that if and when he became the head coach of the Bulls, which is often how promotions occur in the NBA, he knew that he would have to begin immediately forming the kind of relationship based not just on getting in the gym and coaching someone, but on long conversations and and slowly coming to an agreement on philosophy and approach. And Phil Jackson really filled that role as a mentor. So did Johnny Bach, the uh, uh, elderly uh, in his 70s when when Jordan uh, met him, uh, the elderly assistant coach. He was spry. Elderly is a bad word. He was an older assistant coach, and he was the mentor who encouraged Jordan to use his talents to the fullest. He would, you know, he he had lost a brother in in air combat over Europe and. World War II, Bach himself had served in the Navy. He was always quoting Admiral Halsey, attack, 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 you know, from the Pacific Fleet. And he he would walk out of the huddle following Jordan onto the floor telling him, attack, attack, attack. And he was where where, uh, Phil Jackson was often trying to get him to hold back, uh, Johnny Bach was constantly pushing him to look for ways to attack. And so Michael had these conflicting mentors, but he had no trouble negotiating between the two. And he used both um, mentors and the things they had to say to build his approach. So, you know, that's interesting because uh, I I did a TED Talk recently. I talked about when I was 16 years old, I reached out to the smartest person I knew at that time, which was my grandfather and I said uh Charles will you you know give me all of life's answers and he said to me he said you know Ty the world's too complicated you won't find it all in one person he said if you're lucky you'll find a handful of people so you know that's what you're saying here Jordan found a assortment of people who hit him at different levels but nonetheless you could see even at the highest level of greatness uh you see these mentors always in the greed, you know, that's just like a key ingredient. It fascinates me, and, and I'm glad you're highlighting this, you know. Even at the Bulls when he was at his peak, not even talking about, you know, Dean Smith and, and even, uh, you know, in his childhood, he still had this compl- – I always say, you know, and tell me this, let's step away from Jordan because this is something I've said for years, uh, is that the thing that fascinates me about sports, uh, pro, pro sports, particularly basketball – is that most humans peak early, right? We peak and most people peak in their teens, they're learning, they're in school, they have the most amount of friends, their physical health is the best, but pro athletes somehow figure out how to peak. I mean, I was just watching the final, or the, the semifinals and uh, you see players out there that are in their, whether it's Tim Duncan or, or, you know, older and still at tremendous levels of physical and mental prowess And I've often said, and tell me if you agree with this, um, it's in great part because they're open to continually having coaches, mentors. They might have a dietician. They might have someone showing how to stretch, a free throw coach, you know, and all these coaches. So they've surrounded themselves by coaches slash mentors, and it prolongs the greatness. 
Well, uh, I would agree. Tim Duncan, uh, again, is this brilliant young man who is open to influence and, of course, has had a fabulous partnership with Greg Popovich, the coach of the Spurs, over the years, which is, and Jordan sort of pioneered that kind of maturity, that ability of an older player. It involves weight training, it involves mental training, but that ability to compete at a high level, even though you've moved past 35 and you're long past the time when you're at your physical peak. I I do think, you know, I taught college for 21 years and I taught college journalism and my main push is what I call my best minds principle. I wanted my students to identify the best minds in their in their chosen career path, in their fields of interest, and to make those people colleagues. And to do that through the interview process, to interview the best minds and to really prepare for those interviews and to follow up by by reaching out to the people and thanking them. And I've seen that work so many times for uh, for people growing and learning in a field. Jordan encountered his mentors innately. He he had a sense. He he was very uh, perceptive. He was you know there'd be a there could be a large room of people and he would have looked over and scouted out every single person in the room. I've noticed that many times from him. And he had that ability to see. You say what you you, you, like identifying a hierarchy and saying these are the people I can learn from, these are people I can ignore. Right. That's fascinating. One one of my mentors, Alan Nation, told me he said, "Ty, the secret to life is uh, ignoring 99 out of 100 people. But when you find that one, ignoring completely. But when you find that one out of 100, listen to everything they say. It's kind of lock right in. So." Uh, interesting that you teach this to your to your students because I call this the law of 10%. You know, you probably only do 10% of who you copy. Uh, you know, if I try to learn basketball, I could learn from my next door neighbor who's better than me. That takes, you know, eight hours of effort to learn. Or I could learn from the greatest, Michael Jordan. And even if I get remotely 10% as good as him, I'm doing all right. So. Right, and of course, I I had the benefit of learning from a a genius like Tex Winter or Phil Jackson or Johnny Bach and and interviewing all the great ones. And so that allowed me to build the kind of expertise to to understand the game on a deeper level. You know, I played uh, a little college football and then uh, a couple of years of college rugby, and my father was a big basketball guy. Uh, But just the athletic experience the background of playing in a division one program allowed me to to understand so many things about competition and the the process and rhythm of athletics and coaching i I mean sports are important you know i in high school i played at one of the the biggest schools in the u.s i i was one of those guys who was in sophomore got moved up to varsity i played at enlo north carolina so nate mcmillan school danny young we played against broughton you know Wow. A lot of the uh, Pistol Pete Maravich. It was, you know, North Carolina is a big. We, I played against Jerry Stackhouse in high school, and yeah. it's invaluable. Uh, and people underestimate. I mean, from an evolutionary bi- biology standpoint, sports are important. They're displays of prowess. They're lessons for other people in society. So uh, anyway, let's keep going here. I don't want to keep you too long, but sure. it's absolutely fascinating. So. Let's get to this next element, which you talked about, I mean, all throughout the book. Uh, amazing book. I, I may read this one twice. Uh, competitiveness. What do you see here uh, with, you're with Jordan? You're, you know him in person. You, you've written about him. What's the, the good side and the dark side? And what can we take from this as everyday people? Uh, what's the lesson there? Well, you know, uh, I had to ask Michael in 1998. When I was doing the book Blood on the Horns, which was about the breakup of the Bulls, I, I had that. to ask I him. I remember that. Right. Yeah. I had to ask him about his harshness with teammates. And of course, Jordan had all these different psychological devices. He would, and part of it involved trash talking, and he would, he would put all this pressure on himself. Uh, 
and and on the others around him. And the more he put on them, the more he put on himself because he had to live up to everything. And, and he, he he just had sort of these stair stepping uh, devices for con- continually upping the pressure. And you know he could be very very harsh. And I had to ask him, and I and I thought, how am I going to pose this question? and be able to launch the conversation. So I thought, well, I'll ask him, you know, Michael, I've observed that you're one of the greatest team leaders in the history of the sport, but you've got some very unusual techniques. You've got this really wicked, almost destructive sense of humor. You've got this this ability. You want to challenge and destroy every one of your teammates in one-on-one. And, uh, you know, a lot of them say it's very difficult to be your teammate. And it was almost like he wanted to answer that question that he was hoping someone would ask him. And he would say, yes, I can be harsh, but I don't be harsh for the sake of being harsh. I'm harsh to see if they're ready to uh, step on that court during the playoffs with me and they're ready to deal with the pressure and to perform at a high level. His teammates acknowledged that that was a lot of the purpose, but they also said there are times he's just downright mean. So maybe, uh, you know, I talk about this law of 33%. Surround yourself with people 20 years ahead of you in capacity and ability, and they make you uncomfortable. And it's like lifting weights. There's a burn there, and the burn grinds out the imperfections and impurities. You put this on page 200 of the book. Michael Jordan, by the way, we're interviewing uh, Roland Lazenby, Michael Jordan, The Life, page 200. He said, you quote Jordan saying, I was always testing uh, that, that aspect, the competitiveness of my teammates' character on and off the court. You pick on them to see if they will stand up. If they don't take it, you know, uh, if they don't take being picked on, you know you can trust them to come through and pressure is on the game. So, like you said, it was there was a utilitarian reason for this uh, competitiveness even among his teammates. I was sitting around in 95 talking with Phil Jackson about his experience coaching Michael. And he said, you know, um, it, it, it energized the whole team to be in a game and to watch Michael take on one, two, three, four, five guys going to the basket to beat all five. And there were times at the end of games when we had to have that and just the way he could enthuse everybody with that magical ability. But he said on the days off between games when that competitiveness was still on, still hardwired, still up and running. Michael could be difficult to live with and sometimes on those days because he always is gaming. He's always there with something to prove. He's always in that debate with his disapproving father. You don't think, though, it comes from a place of... In- I mean, you, we've all been around people that are nitpicky and hard on others out of insecurity. Do you think... Right. There was an element of insecurity. I mean, you did say his grandfather, I mean, his father kind of was hard on him and never gave him, you know, like you quote in the book where he talks about go back in with the women, you know, basically you don't deserve to be out here with us men. Do you think there was a lingering? Well, if Michael Jordan had insecurity, he had learned to disguise it very well. And (laughs) that's why he would not drink. That's why uh, much early, especially early on, he later began drinking beer and, and wine. But he he really was not a partier because he did not want to show any weakness whatsoever to opponents. And he he was very conscious of not showing weakness to opponents. And that included teammates because his teammates were his opponents. You know, James Worthy, who was a junior at North Carolina when Michael came there as a freshman, uh, said Michael was a bully and he bullied me because Jordan was always on him to play one-on-one. And Worthy knew it was a power game, and it went on and on. And and Jordan ran this power game constantly with his teammates. If if he was relentless in energy, and Jordan rarely slept, uh, if he had two or three hours of sleep a night, uh, he could. And as he got older, he could do all this prodigious partying, and then be up at at five a.m. ready to play forty five holes of golf or whatever. And he just had this motor that ran all the time, and he was I, I mean, over you, think, you with it. 
I talk a lot about toughness, you know, the need. We live in it. There's this old saying by Will Durant, the famous historian, that a nation is born stoic and dies Epicurean. And, you know, <laughs> Epicureans were people who lived for today. Sure, sure, and, that's great. So let's talk about this toughness. I mean, Jordan, where, some of it sounds like it was genetic, a little bit of it. His father, uh, great-grandfather, you know, logging with a crippled leg. The, those uh, guys, uh, you know, Jordan had a lot of that hard edge out of those moonshiners. And his his mother's father made it as a sharecropper when no one, white or black, made it. And he was a very tough, unfriendly man. But he, you know, all the farmers on the coastal plain of North Carolina were landless. But he came to own his own land, and he was uh, just this very harsh, unforgiving guy who really ground out his success in a hard place. But that toughening up, I mean, so there's this genetic element, and then there's this Jordan you see at every turn, whether it's playing through the injuries, uh, whether, like you just saying now, I didn't realize you know how little he partied. Because not only does partying show weakness uh, to others, potentially, if you get drunk and start crying or something, but also... Those, you know, dissipation, it weakens you, it weakens the morale, the, the character. And so he was a, a tough man. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, yes, no question. Let's, let's diverge here for a second. Just your experience meeting all these NBA players, obviously Michael Jordan in particular. What do you take away from these guys? You know, I think the, the zeitgeist out here in the world is that um, I read once an article how people cope with the success of others and people say things like, well, they inherited it or they got it unfairly or they don't deserve it. It was just luck. And few of us can cope with the fact that maybe someone just worked a little harder and a little smarter than us. Is your well, they all start with physical gifts. There's no question. Uh, and I've, you know, I've covered the league for a long time. You'll have guys arrive there who are a little lazy, who are, uh, or a lot lazy, who are really coasting. Uh, who are sometimes not very smart, but it, in that environment, and it's extremely competitive, uh, you can't really get by long on that unless you were just so talented. It's ridiculous. You and, find at the very top. So the NBA is already three, 100 million people play basketball, three or right. 400 make it pro. Uh, so it's already a big cut just to make right. it. Right. And then the league at any given time, as Jerry West explained to me once, an experienced has borne out, there are usually only about a half dozen, maybe sometimes uh, a dozen, but usually about a half dozen truly exceptional players in the league. Yeah, so let's and, talk about those because I'm interested yeah, in the okay. top of the top. So the 1% of the 1%, uh, whether it be Jordan or a Kobe or a LeBron, do, you, do they all have common attributes that you think can beat? Obviously, correlation and causation is hard to always uh, put together, but do you see a thread running between all of them? And if so, what are a few of those threads? That well, I, I, you know, I think uh, talent is, is the defining factor. What separates them is who has talent, but also this huge work ethic. You know, and I always found David Robinson fascinating. You know, he had like 1380 on college boards. I, I went to Virginia Military Institute undergrad, and David Robinson was set to go there. He was only a six foot six second team all-district high school center. And uh, the coach wouldn't drive to his house to sign him. So his, his folks were from a Navy background, and they, they told him to go ahead and go to Annapolis. He went to Navy, grew to seven feet one, became this great player. Uh, he could do electronics projects, scratch golfer. You know, the Italian idea of sprezzatura was really uh, David Robinson, but he did not. He was so talented. Uh, you know, body like Black Onyx. Uh, he was so talented, he had no work ethic. Really? And I remember talking to him, and he was. He said, I can't figure out Jordan. How does he do it? And when I would cover Spurs camp, the coaches would get so frustrated because David, the leader of the team, would, would ask out of drills. And, he, he, of course, they never won a championship till, till Tim Duncan came there as a young player. But Dennis Rodman, who had... 
such an over-the-top work ethic. A kid who didn't even play high school basketball was 5'8 when he graduated high school. He went to San Antonio. He had played and won championships with the Pistons. And he got down there and he saw David Robinson. And, of course, Dennis Robin had this rebel uh, image. And, and David Robinson was the admiral. He, you know, he was every bit the guy of the system. But Dennis Rodman was so turned off by David Robinson's approach that he would not even speak to him. They had to fly something like six hours round trip in a, in a, uh, a jet to a Pepsi commercial, and Rodman refused to speak to Robinson the whole way and back. And it used to drive David Robinson crazy, but he didn't understand work ethic. Yeah, it's like if you think of it right there, those two players, uh, David Robinson clearly winning on the talent, especially, uh, you know, offensive and height and so on and potential and capacity. But Rodman, in many ways, I'm sure, I mean, I've been following basketball since I was 12. I'm not as experienced as you, but I could see plenty of coaches picking Dennis Rodman to go along with the team over David Robinson if you're trying to... Oh, yes. It didn't take long. And, of course, uh, Rodman, who had had trouble identifying with his father or uh, an absent father, would often uh, identify with his coaches, Chuck Daly with the Detroit Pistons, and later uh, Phil Jackson and uh, Tex Winter with the Bulls. And he would formed tremendous allegiance to the coaches and uh they it, he was a favorite because there was no end to the work he would do i mean, I mean the guy literally lifted weights around the clock i know he's fat. so you say so going back to this we've got there's obviously talent which gets you in the nba but the defining characteristic of these great whether it's jordan or or uh you know rodman it's this above the board work ethic. You know, there's this, uh, in, in a lot of the people listening to this are not only sports fans, but a lot of them are entrepreneurs. And there's kind right. of this mentality going out, uh, which I am very anti, uh, which is this kind of idea of figuring out how to live a four hour work week and automate your life and spend your life, the rest of your life laying on the beach. And I say it can't be done in business. It's extremely, it's a comp- business world is as competitive as sports if you want to become highly successful. And do you see even any instance out there of people who really, uh, basketball players who achieve greatness uh, and really coasted? I mean, I know they coasted to get into no, the NBA. No. Um, the thing that was defining about the Bulls is that Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen were, were – uh, married to Tex Winter's intense system of fundamentals. It was the most fundamentally sound team in the history of pro basketball. And, and they would open practice throwing chess passes for 15 Just like minutes. high school or junior high. Right. Well, you can't you, – I've coached AAU uh, quite a bit. You can't get 12- and 13-year-olds to approach <laughs> fundamentals. Uh, the comical thing for me was Phil Jackson coaching the All-Star game and having these, uh, these NBA All-Stars out there doing those fundamental uh, hop, skip, raise your hand in the air, you know, going off the right foot uh, drills up and down the court, hopping along like they're uh, – Chasing dandelions or something, but it's you know it's that going off the inside foot, really working with him during the All Star weekend to make sure they were going off the correct foot on their shots. And you know here these guys are making millions, shaking their heads. This fundamentals, it it never should really stop, even at the highest level. In fact, um, after their experience on the nineteen ninety two Olympic team, the Dream Team, Pippen and Jordan were sitting on a uh, the Bulls team bus and Pippen uh, looked at Jordan and said, could you imagine Clyde Drexler and the player he would be if he had to work every day in Tex Winter's system and do all those fundamentals? And he had a complete absence of them. He, he didn't need them. I mean, he was just that talented. Amazing. All right, he did so- need them, but he didn't understand it. And I, I do want to say that LeBron James, being on the Olympic team with Kobe Bryant, got a real eye-opener. He he didn't understand what it took. And, and I do think that it's endemic 
in in our world because our educational system it's not just basketball it is everything the people who are planning to do things do not understand they are not told they do not register it when they are told how truly difficult it is to be successful and what it takes the sacrifices and uh, you can revise curriculum all the ways you want but until you find a way to instill that understanding the educational system is is going to be a show pony and not much more Charlie Munger, the great billionaire, I was just at the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. I'm a shareholder there. And he said, to get what you want, you have to deserve what you want. The world's not yet a crazy enough place to reward a whole bunch of undeserving people. And that's so diametrically opposed to, like you're talking about, the education system. I mean, you even see it uh, at the highest levels of pro sports. You see people who are forgetting that the world owes you nothing. You must earn and and deserve everything from physical, money, financial, love, and all these things. We generally get what we deserve, and most people can't cope with that. Michael Jordan. I think that's why people love to follow sports so much. It's a metaphor for an area where there is not as much protection. Obviously, you have players with long term guaranteed contracts in the NBA. The NFL contracts aren't aren't guaranteed there might be some guaranteed bonus money but you're watching people who who are going to decline physically they have to do everything they can to stay on top of their game in a very challenging environment <clears throat> you don't really have that even in the, the dog eat dog world of investments and things of that nature we build in security into our uh, system so you think that for all of us uh, and I've talked Pardon about me. this. Taking away the lifeboat uh, can have profoundly positive effects on your life. Getting rid of uh, it can be. It also leads an awful lot of people to drown. And so, probably the best alternative is to encourage that kind of thinking on an individual basis. Those people are rewarded for that. <clears throat> but we create societal systems to. Uh, take care of things like aging. Uh, yeah, I'm not talking about on a political le- level. I'm much more, you know. Uh, <coughs> uh, I apologize for calling. You can mentally remove these fallbacks, and obviously they're going to still be there. Just like Michael Jordan knew, if he didn't win a championship, he still he wasn't going to be rejected by society. But I'm I'd have to believe after reading your book uh, that he removed some of this. Uh, some of that lifeboat, he tricked his own mind into thinking, no, this is do or die. This is make or break. If if I don't do this, this sportscaster who has mocked me, it, you know, he's going to be right, and I can't let him be right because people will be laughing at me. And at every turn, that's right. where that fierceness, according so, to So much of this is a function of human nature, though. There are just certain people who are fearless. Right. And it's not a quality. It's It's just nature. Uh, I happen to be one of these people. I've just never had a lot. Now, I'm in, in my 60s, and uh, suddenly I'm, I've begun acquiring fear, so it's a new thing for me. But you have you, not everybody. In fact, very few people are fearless. And so society is is built for those with fears. That's normal. Uh, Michael Jordan, as Steve Kerr told me over and over again, was not normal. <laughs> he was not human. And the reason the, the team loved Scottie Pippen so much, Scottie Pippen had all of this ability, but but Pippen was human. He, yeah, Pippen he was, was mortal. mortal. Well, I read a book, Why We Like Sports, that at some level we were watching evolution happen in front of us. We are watching right. uh, almost in a certain sense demigods. You're seeing people that are almost – I mean, LeBron James is I've, – I've met him in person. He's certainly – almost not like a regular human. I mean, six no, he eight, isn't. I, I've been covering the NBA for years. I, you know, it's filled with big people. I, I You pay no attention. I, it just becomes routine. And I was walking on the upper um, uh, track at uh, Moody Bible during the uh, pre-draft camp when LeBron was going to be drafted. And, and suddenly he was just standing there in front of me. And, and I went, whoa. Yeah. 
and, and I mean, I'd never seen somebody with such a presence. He's bigger than his six foot eight. Right. You know, some guy, and I, and I think, but you know what I, the way I see that is these people, uh, and if you study evolution uh, on kind of a macro level, uh, zoomed out, this is what moves people forward. You must have great examples so that if you and I even accomplish 10% uh, in our own way, like John Wooden said, God only made one bar. We're not in a competition with him. We're in a competition with our own capacity. Right, but again, met, uh, an appropriate metaphor. Uh, uh, you know, whatever we see, we we find some construct, some model that bears some relevance in our own lives. Uh, obviously, we're not all NBA players, uh, or we're not all NFL quarterbacks. But but there's a reason culture is so fascinated with this because so the, it goes gonna... to the heart of everything else. Start wrapping up here, but I want to again. I'm I'm here uh, with uh, Roland Lazenby, Lazenby, Michael Jordan, the life, the definitive book I've read on the greatest basketball player. Go out and get it uh, immediately. Take my word on it. We're gonna have this up on my site, tylopez.com. We'll have a review. I already have a review up on the book. For those of you on the podcast. Uh, and those of you uh, on YouTube and on my website and email newsletter, this is one of the great books for you to own, even if you don't like sports, by the way. Uh, even if you're not interested in basketball, read this book. So a couple other closing things. You, you spoke of, and we talk on, the, on the, these shows, we talk about the good life, you know, health, wealth, love, and happiness. Let's talk about the physical side of Jordan. Uh, obviously a specimen and every, but you talk about this great physical energy. Any takeaways that you see uh, in terms of things that he did? I mean, he did some things strange, like go counter to, to modern medis- medical advice, like not sleep much. But what about other things? Was he just coasting on on this great physique and co- uh, constitution, or was he? Oh, no. I mean, the work ethic drove and drove. And, you know, the, the Bulls... Um... Dean Smith was not a big believer in weightlifting, and, and Michael... You know, as he encountered the Pistons, he knew he had to get more physical, uh, and and he began that process. But then he went to play baseball and created a baseball. But you know, he began the process of a longer, leaner body. Then, the, of course, the labor troubles came to baseball, and he went back to basketball, and he went back with a tremendous amount of anger. But he got involved with his wife's trainer, Tim Grover. Yes, and they created the Breakfast Club, and Ron Harper and Scottie Pippen. And Jordan were the breakfast club. And then Rodman sort of did his own thing, but he trained relentlessly. But what you had in the 95-96 Bulls, it was a team driven by Jordan's anger. The anger of the uh, of the family member of a murder victim. The anger of uh, a lot of different things that have gone on in his life, family issues and whatnot. But that anger drove them. But they were the best conditioned team likely in the history of the game. So tell us about this breakfast club. What would they do? They would lift weights and train. I mean, they this is over and beyond whatever the team did in basketball. And they would lift religiously every day. And Rodman on his own, I, I mean, he would lift after games, before games. He, he, he became, even though, you know, he didn't gain his height until after high school, he became just incredibly I mean, strong on that guy rodman could run i know sometimes he'd go on the treadmill two hours after the game and listen to pearl jam and he was a specimen <laughs> right right he was right all there, you're that. Saying, i mean the breakfast club is somebody anybody is something anybody could do whether you're a pro basketball or not no question and you could have a commitment i did this uh t- i used to do this talk to high school and uh, I, I used it in discussing Kobe Bryant, but it's an attribute that applies to Michael Jordan. I called it the the greatest grocery bagger of all time. And I was talking to a high school group. I was talking about Kobe Bryant, uh, explaining what the atmosphere was like when he went to the Lakers at age 17. And I asked this young lady sitting on the front row, I said, how old are you? She said, 17. I said, do you have a job? She said, yes, I work at the grocery store. Well, I said, how about going in tonight and, and telling all the, uh, older workers that are with you that you want them to stay after work so that you can they can study stocking shelves better and they can learn how to operate the, the you know the cash registers faster and they memorize all the aisles 
and you're going to do all this intensive training. And by the way, you're just 17, but in five years, you're going to be not just uh, you know manager of the grocery store. You're going to be president of the corporation. That right. and and um, you know, Derek Fisher told me after watching Kobe come in with all these veterans who were just totally turned off by this aggressive 17-year-old kid, Derek Fisher told me, you know, that's the way we all should have been. And and I once said on Twitter, I said, if if everybody had Kobe Bryant's attitude, this unbending desire to work, we'd be selling condos on the moon right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt the capacity of humans is... You take any societal problem, whether it be political, geopolitical, whether it be physical, at the end of the day, it's like Confucius, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, he said, if you want to solve the king, the king's problems, you have to solve his parents, his mom's problems, if you want to solve his mom's problems, you have to do the great-grand, I mean, the grandparents and great-grand, and at the end of the, 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 the exercise, he says, and then to change that person, they have to change inside. I mean, it's the brain that makes or breaks society at every level. Uh, and it's why we're fascinated by Kobe Bryant. Right. There was something there that's not there with, with most of society. Well, you know, I, I, on the other side of things, I think there are people working jobs every day for uh, minimum wages who put in incredible hours and, and work very hard. And we often lose sight of this invisible workforce. So many of them dedicated so many of them hardworking. Uh, I, I think there's a certain element of human nature. I, I think Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan would work that hard whether they were making $20 million a year or not. Right. Uh, and, and I think there is something about human nature that drives those gifted with tremendous work ethic just to do it. And I, and I think, frankly, that's how the <clears throat> the species has advanced. It's that innate work ethic. So much of it resides in, in females, the the yeah. amount of work they do to to drive well, the system We're along. somewhat lazy and somewhat complicated. Uh, <coughs> no question. Let me come back to this thing that you, you brought up something interesting. You said you, in you obviously you've had an extensive career uh, in being able to be one-on-one with some of these great people, and you said you taught a class once, and you said to your students in journalism, the best way is this top of mind, which I call the law of 10%. Go straight to the right. top. Right. I call it just best minds. Best minds. So you said reach out to them, interview them. So if someone's listening here and says, I want to, because I get this question all the time. I've had five mentors, two, uh, three multimillionaires, and two at the billion-dollar level, and I, most of my that's what I've had. It comes from those experiences, those lessons from other people. People often ask me, how do you go out and do that? And I've, I've laid out some ways that I was able to find mentors even when I was just up and coming. Well, what, you, you do you need mean? a computer. Uh, what you have to do is go to Google, type in how to start a blog. And you don't start a blog writing about what you had for breakfast or who you're dating this weekend. Your blog is not about personal details. Your blog and, you know, technology has ripped apart our culture. It's, it's ripped apart our, our civilization. It's knocking out all the, the structures we've known and completely changing our world like a great flood running through things. Totally out of control. But it's also brought with it the blog. And the blog allows any garden variety, ambitious 20-year-old to start interviewing, preparing and interviewing people, the basic Q&A, and <clears throat> building your way up, meeting these people. I had a, when I was teaching, I, I went to Virginia Military Institute. I didn't go into the military. Uh, the, the Vietnam War had ended. We didn't, we had a choice. We could go or not. A couple of my buddies did. They became full bird colonels, but I had a young ROTC kid in my class, and I said, you know, you need to interview all the retired officers. And so I called one of my uh, one of my VMI buddies who had just retired as a full bird colonel. I said, what would happen if he went out and started interviewing retired officers and confronting all the great issues of the day and publishing a blog on it? He said he'd probably be general ahead of everybody else in the field. It, it's a it's a way to focus your aggressive nature. The problem is most people, 99%, won't do it because it's too much work. Right. It's not an easy path. It's extremely difficult. So when but you it do it, you were saying path. you recommend you interview. Let's say <coughs> sports, you find you, you 
you get it in, you, you find a way to interview, and then you said this follow-up process. Talk about that after you've done the interview to be... Right, uh, and again, these are things I've learned from... Uh, and, and this was key for uh, Jack Kent Cook. You know, he was a poor kid in, in Canada, and he got a job selling radio, and he the radio station was going to close, and he sold all the inventory of it, and uh, Lord... Uh, uh, Thompson of what became Thompson Cook Media gave him half the station for selling the inventory. And there was another great guy, Sid Hartman at the University of, or excuse me, at, at Minneapolis at the newspaper. And his father was a drunk, so he went to hang out at the sports department every day, the, the kid did. And they let him go over and start interviewing coaches. And he, uh, the University of Minnesota, he had all the Big Ten coaches and top coaches in the country coming through. He would interview them and write them thank you notes after he'd interviewed them. Uh-huh. And they were so stunned to get the thank you notes yeah. that that he, within a couple of years, he had uh, a black book with all the home numbers and addresses and a relationship with all the top coaches in America. I call it making war. Uh, the human mind has a reciprocal bias, uh, and that's why Sam Walton wouldn't let any of his buyers take even a pen from a vendor because it compromised your your neutrality. So you can use that with the clever uh, use of gifts, following up with a gift. I've, I've made friends with some of the great billionaires of our time by, like you said, meeting them and then following up with a thoughtful gift. People, I remember not too long ago, I got a call. I, I went down and uh, was was at the Ferrari Museum of the, the guy, Dick Marconi, who started uh, Herbalife, multi-billion dollar company, billionaire. And, and I followed up with a book he, on Ferrari, the coffee table book. And about a month later, I get a random call on my phone. And uh, I said, who is this? And he said, Ty, is this you? This is Dick Marconi. He said, did you send me that Ferrari coffee table book? And I said, yeah. He said, that's the best book I've ever gotten, that gift. And he said, I want to take you out to lunch. He said, come down to my place in San Diego. He owns about 10% of San Diego County. He said, I just uh, got a new, uh, 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 what, what statue did he have? Not Michelangelo, but some piece of Picasso. And he said, come on, I got giraffes. And I was thinking, it cost me $40 for that gift, and yet I've told this to tens and hundreds of thousands of people, and so few people will actually do it. <laughs> it's so right. No, it, it is rare, uh, but my students do it. I had one who was working selling shoes in the local mall, <clears throat> and some guy came in and bought a pair of shoes from him, and so he sent him a thank you note. And 10 days later, the guy who bought the shoes came in the store and asked to speak to the manager. He was really frowning. He said, did you tell this kid to send me a thank you note? The manager looked at him and said, I have no idea what you're talking about. The guy was a a, a, a vice president for Coca-Cola. And so he gave my student a job wow. <laughs> because he was so, uh, <clears throat> you know, um, I guess the name, the word is enterprising. Joel Salatin, my mentor, used to tell me, Ty, the cream rises to the top, man. You can rise to the top, uh, like you said, not just on talent, but also on this work ethic. So last two questions here. This is amazing. Again, uh, go out and get the book, Michael Jordan, The Life. Uh, what's it? Uh, let's talk real quick. You can never talk about Jordan without talking about Phil Jackson. Uh, and I know you uh, know all these guys. Yeah, I wrote a, a biography of Phil Jackson back in 2000 called Mind Games. Mind Games. Awesome. I recommend that, too. I haven't read it, but I'm sure if you wrote it, it's good. Tell us, what what's the takeaway from Phil Jackson for you in your life? What do you learn from such a amazing... You know, he, he's a very complex guy. He is... Uh, he has revolutionized and liberated basketball. He can also he has a really dark side. He's done some really low things and uh the way he uh he dealt with Johnny Bach was probably one of the worst things in the history of pro basketball. Uh Jordan was uh, you know, the subject of Sam Smith's book, The Jordan Rules, that infuriated him and Jerry Krause. Yes. And Phil had been behind the scenes talking with Sam Smith, the author who also covered the team. And when <clears throat> and he was using the Jordan rules to sort of Phil is is a mind control kind of guy. He likes to control the environment. He has all these devices for doing it. And they started to get on his trail as being the guy leaking, so he blamed it on Johnny Bach and told Jerry Krause that Johnny Bach had done it. And so then uh, Phil said, well, Jerry Krause wanted me to fire Johnny Bach, so I had to fire him. 
and um, he fired Johnny Bach, who had been the man, you know, his elderly mentor. And the guy had a heart attack. His life fell apart. Uh, he eventually recovered, and and it was later discovered what Phil did. But uh, he can do low things like that. At the same time, he's absolutely sublime in other occasions and can be unbelievable. But he's also very manipulative. And uh, manipulation leads to alienation. It's why Phil and Michael Jordan are not close today. It's why when Michael Jordan went to the Hall of Fame, he got Johnny Bach. He got Tim Hallam, the PR director. He got Joe O'Neill, the ticket manager for the Bulls, the guys who would hang out with him when he was a rookie. He got all those non-manipulative guys to go on the plane with him to the Hall of Fame. And uh-huh. Phil Jackson had to watch it from a sports bar. Wow. So Phil didn't even show up. He was Yeah, he wasn't there at the Hall of Fame, was he? No, no. So what we learned, I mean, what I always say, I just actually recorded a talk on this. I call it, you know, cast the first stone. And I say, when you go out and you're emulating people, uh, if you're looking for saints, uh, like Jesus Christ said, I'm not very religious, but I love the saying where it said, you know, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And if your mentality is um, to write people off, you're going to be writing off the whole world. Whether even in this book, you talk about the dark side of Jordan and this. So that's fascinating to know that even a man who's held up uh, as such a uh, almost an ethical and almost a guru. Right. Well, you know, he wrote sacred hoops and the the staff members for the Bulls just sneered at that because he could be uh, he could be really condescending to staff members. He got a lot of credit for taking his team in 1994 out to Staten Island instead of practicing during the playoffs. But what wasn't known is that Phil stopped the bus and uh, a block after it had pulled off from the hotel and ordered the only female on the bus off. She was the press officer. It was a horrific experience and very humiliating for her. And he could, for all of his... Uh, illuminating ways. Phil can be a tough, tough cookie. <laughs> so let's end with back to the great one, Michael Jordan. You've met him. What are the what are the things that you know? Let's say I always ask this question: uh, If today was your last day on Earth and you're leaving a manual to civilization, to your children, to your friends about what you learned from Michael Jordan, the great takeaways, uh, the good things. What are those things from both meeting him and covering him? uh, Well, I've covered him and interviewed him many times, and he's always been friendly. When I was going to do this book, I went down there and shook his hand and said, Michael, I'm writing a biography about you. And uh, no one wants a biography. He sort of tilted that frown at me. But um, he didn't make any effort really to to stop or impede my progress. He keeps a tight circle anyway, whether you're doing a biography or not. It's sort of hard to – but I was able to interview many people, and um, they all acknowledge his special gift. And or his special gifts, but they all want him to do more. I, you know, I, my takeaway is it's never enough for Michael Jordan, and that's what that's part of the burden of being the the kind of guy he is. But I do think he's much happier than he was at one time. I think that he's uh, uh, made tremendous progress, and, uh, he's and what can what do you think the listeners from that angle what what can they take away? They're obviously not many of us are six foot six and going to play basketball. What's the lesson? What's the great, you know, Michael Jordan? Well, uh, the, his basketball days are over, but he's still striving very much for this afterlife. He still has, uh, he's still in that yelling match with his old man across the decades, even though it's clear to others that he has his father's affection. It's a, uh, he's still driven by the, the things that have always driven him. Maybe we could say, stay driven. I mean, that's maybe the lesson of Jordan. Well, some people don't have a choice. Uh, you know, uh, some people have to really work to, to to find drive. Others have it in such abundance. You know, they, they sort of cast it off like a static electricity. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, you basically have to identify who you are, uh, 
fit in your level of drive. And, you know, I had so much drive, and I never even really thought about it. You know, I've written better than 60 books, and I had some guy tell me about five years ago, he said, you're the most driven person I've ever known. And that that just hit me like a bolt out of the blue. A lot of times we're pursuing who we are without even contemplating where we fit in the universe. And at but, some level, I'm sure... Uh, it didn't hurt to be driven to study driven people and have that positive feedback loop. Right. Nobody no, wants to be the least driven. No, it's the- true. And, uh, you know, I, and I had a lot of intensity as an instructor. Some people could handle that. Some couldn't. You know, it's it, it doesn't mean they're good or bad or I'm good or bad. It's just it is what it is. And everybody's sort of, you know, I, I've noticed there are all kinds of learners. Everybody's sort of picks their way of moving forward. But those people who are driven, who want to be a driven person, who who really hunger for things, well that that's the category that that I'm interested in. That's the category that defines itself for those people and for those who observe them. Awesome. That I have the same philosophy and that's why the way you wrote this book, I can see it takes a driven person to write a good book about. It. I, I read Jordan Rules. I, I find your book much better than Jordan Rules. Uh, for well, very- that was narrower. Jordan Rules was very important because it reveals so much. Yeah. Uh, and it was fascinating, but it was just about the 19, mostly the 1991 season, the breakthrough season. I like the new Lakers book, by the way, that new Showtime book. I don't know if you read that. Yes, I have, and it's great. Uh, you know, I did an oral history of the Lakers in 2005 called The Show. That, okay. um, And so I've written a lot about the Lakers. Uh, and that preceded my my Jerry West book in 2010 with ESPN. And so when I say I'm uh, impressed by the Showtime book, I've, I've put a lot of time in that neighborhood, and I am impressed by the Showtime book. Great. So if people want to learn uh, more about you, what's the best way? You have a website, Twitter? Yeah, at Twitter, at La- excuse me, at Lazenby, A-L-A-Z-E-N-B-Y, at Lazenby. Best way uh, to get your book? You have it on your site, on Amazon, a bookstore? What you, what's the best way? You I know, know I don't even sell it on my own site, but I suggest you go to Barnes & Noble or your great local independent bookstore. Awesome. Michael Jordan, The Life, for those of you listening, uh, go to tylopez.com. I will have the notes from this, an article. I'll have links to the book, uh, and I will have this recorded there both on YouTube and on my podcast. Thank you so much, Roland. Thank you, Ty. I really enjoyed it, man. I enjoyed it. You're a great, uh, a great writer and a great speaker, too. Thank you much. I appreciate that.